Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. If I was convinced that there were no problems here and that uh, there was absolutely no question that Mark Lundy was guilty, you know, I wouldn't have spent 13 years looking at this and so much time investigating it. Hi, this is Crimes NZ, and I'm your host, Jesse Mulligan. This is a podcast where I talk to people connected in one way or another with some of New Zealand's most notorious crimes. And in this episode, we're looking into the murders of Christine and Amber Lundy. In 2002, Mark Lundy was found guilty of killing his wife and his daughter. But investigative journalist Mike White isn't convinced. I'd recently run a story about the Scott Watson case, looking back at that, and one of um, Mark Lundy's supporters, uh, a man called Jeff Levick, contacted me. We were at a conference and said, hey, you should have a look at the Mark Lundy case, and I was really reluctant to because I thought, oh, Mark Lundy, he's guilty. You know, there's no way you can kind of argue against that. And But, but he gave me this book or draft of a book that he'd written and I sat on it for a while and then on a ferry crossing one time I, I pulled it out and had a look and thought, gosh, there's an awful lot I don't know about this case. And I think that's the, the situation for a lot of New Zealanders. They think they know a lot about the Mark Lundy case. Um, Mark Lundy obviously convicted of killing his wife, Christine, and a seven-year-old daughter, Amber, in 2000. Um, and so I looked at it, sat on it again, and eventually got round to investigating it and spent three months uh, back in 2008, it was by then, uh, looking at the case and writing a story. And I've followed what's happened ever since, which has been a long and convoluted process through lots of different courts. And um, in 2015, Mark Lundy went back, had a a retrial, uh, was convicted again. And the last legal step kind of happened at the end of last year when the Supreme Court rebuffed his, his appeal from that 2015 conviction. So, yep, he's uh, back in jail and um, uh, he's serving the 20-year sentence that he was given uh, eventually after he was first convicted in 2002. So that's it for him now, is it? Well, you never say never. Every step of the legal process when you lose an appeal gets harder and harder to kind of convince people that, hey, something went wrong and that you're innocent. Mm. He does have uh, the right to appeal to the new body that's being set up and will start next month called the Criminal Cases Review Commission that this government set up for people who, th- who believe they've been wrongfully convicted. His supporters will be uh, lodging an appeal there. But he's been through, uh, since his reconviction in 2015, he's been to the Court of Appeal, he's been to the Supreme Court and, and been knocked back both times. But that hasn't stopped his supporters and his lawyers believing in him and wanting to fight uh, to prove that he was wrongfully convicted and he wasn't guilty of the murders. You and I had a good chat about uh, Scott Watson and the Ben and Olivia case, Mm. and at the end of that chat, I said to you, well, do you think he is guilty? And you you said quite a diplomatic answer, a clever answer, was to say that you didn't think 
that there was enough evidence to convict him. I think that was, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. Uh, and is that how you feel about this case as well, or do you feel more strongly about this one, that he is not, that he's innocent? No, I, I sort of don't rank the cases that I've looked at like that. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, in both Scott Watson's case and the Mark Lindy case, there are things that just leave me so uncomfortable and so troubled about how the conviction was reached and the evidence that was presented that I've stuck with them and looked at them. I mean, if I was convinced that there were no problems here and that uh, there was absolutely no question that Mark Lundy was guilty, you know, I wouldn't have spent 13 years looking at this and so much time investigating it. Um, even having sat through the uh, the two-month retrial in 2015 and all the other appeals and, and hearings, um, I'm still left with huge doubts about the evidence that was presented to him. And I haven't been able to reach a, a, a kind of a position where I'm convinced beyond reasonable doubt that he did it. Um, for many other people, they are, and and, and that's fine, and, and that's how the justice system works. You know, we ask the jury to s- see whether they can be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that this person's guilty. Um, obviously, the, the jury that heard Mark Lundy's retrial um, were satisfied that he was on the evidence that was presented. Knowing what I do, looking at all the evidence, I've never been able to get to that point at all. But whether he's guilty or not, you know, it's it's the old story. I wasn't there, I don't know. All you can do is look at the evidence and weigh that up and and, and concentrate on what you know and what you can prove. And in your opinion, uh, and um, based on your analysis of the case, there isn't enough evidence to convict? Well... There's strong evidence, you know, let's let's not make any mistake about that. Mark Lundy essentially is convicted on two specks that were found on a polo shirt that he wore, um, which have been in the courts shown to be or, or argued to be his wife's um, from his wife's um, central nervous system or, or brain. Two specks of brain, essentially, on his shirt. Tiny specks, but uh, have gone through numerous tests. Now, also, uh, there was DNA from his wife that was shown to, to be you know, uh, very strongly present in the area where these two specks of, of tissue were found. Now, that's a pretty compelling bit of evidence against you. You don't get your wife's brain tissue on your shirt uh, if you're innocent, essentially. Yeah. And that was what was hammered away at his retrial. Philip Morgan, the prosecutor, very strongly said no man should have his wife's brain on his shirt. Yeah. And, and that's very hard to get past. But, of course, there's been such argument about the testing that went on to supposedly show that this was brain tissue. And there's significant concern about this because it was a novel test that was done. Uh, in this respect, being um, testing the test that they did is something called immunohistochemistry, and people are probably switching off their radios right now when you start using words like that and getting into the science because it is really complex. But I mean, other than this evidence about the brain tissue, there's not a lot that really links Mark Lundy forensically to the crime. At his first trial, there was a whole lot of things that the police brought forward and said proved that he was went back to, to his house and murdered his wife and, and child, and there was even an eyewitness. By his second trial, there's not really anything like that. There's some other evidence which might suggest it was possible that he did it, but essentially they're relying completely on these two bits 
of, of tissue that were found on a shirt and, you know, a few other things. They managed to find a jailhouse snitch by the time of the second trial who claimed Mark Lundy confessed in jail. Well, yeah, that's the... It's, uh, well, we've learnt yeah. in this slot that, that the problems with that... Um, for people who don't know the case, can you tell us what happened on the okay. day of the crime? OK, so in uh, August the 30th, 2000... Mark Lundy drove, sorry, on the 29th of August, he drove to Wellington. He was a sink salesman. He, he and his wife, Christine, owned a company selling sinks and kitchen benches. He drove to Petoni where he checked into a motel and he was doing business down there and st- staying overnight. Christine and Mark and Christine's seven-year-old daughter, Amber, were their bodies were found early the next morning on the 30th. Um, and they'd been brutally murdered in their in their home. Uh, Mark Lundy eventually was contacted, told the police uh, uh, all around his house. He races back to Palmerston North um, and is told that his wife and daughter have been murdered. Uh, Mark Lundy isn't immediately taken into custody. It's six months before he's actually charged with a murder and he, he's convicted at, at his first trial on, a, on the basis of a number of points which have subsequently been shown to be wrong or erroneous, but essentially on the, on the basis that, again, these two specks on his shirt were from his wife's brain. Um, it's a complex case, Jesse, if you want to get into the science. It's really complex, but for a lot of people, it's really simple. They just remember Mark Lundy, this big fat guy who, on the night that his wife and daughter were killed, hired a prostitute in Wellington, and at their funeral was wailing and collapsing in what seemed like overplayed histrionics. Um, And that's the image that probably most people will remember of Mark Lundy. Is there any greater example of the power of the image, right? That's what I see in my head when I think of Mark Lundy. Yeah, absolutely, and and I did too. Um, Still do, but I mean, that's what I remembered when I was first contacted Mm. about this case. It's an incredibly powerful image if you want to look at it and think, gosh, this guy's play-acting, he's not genuine, he must be guilty. And I think that's enough for a lot of people, but I've kind of never been convinced that you can look at someone and how they're acting, especially someone no. whose wife and daughter have just been murdered, and and judge whether they're the killer or not. It is a powerful point, and the media have replayed that image and those clips over and over and over again, and still do to this day. And uh, for, for, as I say, for, for a lot of people, that's enough. That convinces them. But the case is a lot more deep. It's a lot deeper and a lot more complex than that. The other thing that people will remember is this uh, controversy about how f- the, the speed at which he yeah. um, went from Wellington to Palmerston North and back. And so, why did that become an issue? Well, originally, the, the police case was that Mark Lundy, he was shown to be in Petoni by his cell phone records at 5.30 in the afternoon and again at 8.30 that night. So he only had three hours, less than three hours, to somehow commit this murder because the police said at that stage that Christine and Amber were killed at 7pm, pretty much at that or maybe just a little bit afterwards. And so Mark Lundy had three hours to drive from Petoni in rush hour traffic, do a 300-kilometre round trip back to Palmerston North, 
park 500 metres away, run back to his house, kill his wife and daughter, manipulate the computer, do all sorts of other things, hide all the material that he um, was wearing, etc. And then drive back to Petone, somehow all within three hours. And everyone who's tried to do that trip, including myself, I tried three times um, to do it in that time. They've got nowhere near it. And no one could explain how it happened, but the courts were convinced that he somehow had managed to do it. No one saw him. Well, that's the other extraordinary thing. If you're going to do this trip at, at uh, averaging 120 kilometres an hour, averaging 120k an hour, no one saw him. No one star five fived him. No one, you know, no no one noticed this lunatic on the road. So it was always a really extraordinary thing to think that he could have done it, and no one. And noticed. that was based. Sorry, Mike. That was based on on what cell phone pings was it? Yeah, um, he he was shown to to be pinging off at, uh, off cell towers near. Petoni near the motel at 5.30 and again at 8.29pm that mm. night. Was there any pinging uh, during the night that uh, could have shown one way or the other whether he, um, whether he was in Palmerston North or not? Obviously not. No, um, you know, and, and theoretically Mark Lundy could have just left his phone at the motel. Right. So you, you can't really draw anything into that other than the calls that he made uh, and those were the only calls that um, were pointed to uh, at 5.30 and then again at 8.29, which uh, call that went off. Oh, they were calls. There were inco- incoming Got calls it. to him. Got yeah. it, yeah. Uh, incoming, call, oh, incoming calls that he took? Yes. Uh, one was know. from uh, Amber and or Christine at 5.30 and one was from his business partner at 8.29. Uh, there was a missed call at 8.13. Well, an incoming call at 8.13, uh, but Mark Lundy says he was in the, in the bathroom and, and he came out and he returned the call at 8.29. Yeah. Are they reliable, by the way? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Um, there's debate about uh, exactly which tower um, it was pinging off and, and how it was rooted at the time. But by the time of the second trial, by the time Mark Lundy was retried, because, of course, all this, you know, was these questions were brought forward following his conviction, and after years and years and years, the Privy Council eventually quashed his conviction and said there's too much doubt, sent it back to be retried. That happened in 2015. But by that time, this mad 300-kilometre trip was out the window, along with a lot of the other evidence that had been presented by the police and, and the prosecution at his first trial. The case and the scenario against Mark Lundy had changed dramatically by the the retrial, and this 300k mad trip within three hours was gone. And instead, Mark Lundy didn't drive home to kill his wife and daughter at 7 p.m. He did it oh much later. He did it, you know. Uh, he left it after one o'clock and did it really quietly and sedately, and that so that no one would notice. So that was just one of the many things that changed. So the the mad drive that everyone does remember about actually never happened, and even the police and prosecution admitted that by the time of the second trial. Mm. Was that more credible, that, that, that second theory, that he'd done it in the early hours of the morning? It's hard to disprove, uh, because obviously if you say he had to do it within a three-hour period, that's really you know putting the pressure on you. Um, and as I say, no one could replicate it. If you say he did it after one o'clock... And he had several hours to do it, you know, much longer to do it. Well, of course, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it makes it more plausible. 
It also means it's harder for Mark Lundy or anyone to rebut because his only uh, alibi for that time is, I was asleep in my motel alone. So it's not like he can say, well, so-and-so saw me or I was doing this, etc. at that time. But, I mean, even if you take on, you know, believe that he left about 1 o'clock, which would be the 1 a.m. on the 30th, that would be the earliest time that he could have left under the new police scenario. That means he's probably getting back home to commit the murders at about 3 a.m. He's got to do a whole lot of things. Then he's got to drive back to Petone. And that puts him getting back there, if he's driving quietly so he's not noticed by anyone, that puts him back there about... Well, 5 o'clock at the earliest, probably more about 5.30. And again, he's not noticed by anyone, uh, early morning commuters or anyone at the motel. It's a big risk that you're taking, if you, you know, because if he was spotted by one person, by anybody, or seen on a security camera or anything, his alibi was gone. He was toast, you know, because he said, no, I never left Petoni. But if he had been spotted any time in that four or five hours, he would have been gone. He would have been history. So it was a big risk if he was going to do it in the early hours of the morning and arrive back in Petoni at 5, 5.30, that someone might have noticed him. Someone at the motel when he drove back might have noticed it. And supposedly he gets up, you know, and is visiting clients uh, early the next morning looking entirely normal and cheerful. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was all a risk. Uh, but that's the new scenario, the, the one that the police are now uh, saying that we have to believe that he did it between 1 a.m. and about 5 a.m. on the morning. And the jury believed that. Obviously, they convicted him. And, you know, like I say, it was more plausible than the than the three-hour drive, mad drive and rush-hour traffic. Well, it was easier to kind of uh, believe that it could have happened, whereas that three-hour drive was just so difficult to believe. But again, it all comes back to the brain tissue. You know, the the jury at the first trial probably thought, well, you know, that doesn't seem like it's possible, but he's got his wife's brain on his shirt. He must be guilty. Um, So much to ask about. There was a witness in Palmerston North. At the first uh, trial, there was uh, Margaret Dance. Um, as I say, you know, at the first trial, the police at least had a few things that were linking mm. Mark Lundy to being there at that time. Um, this was um, Margaret Dance, a self-proclaimed psychic, who claimed to have seen Mark Lundy running away from the crime scene about quarter past seven on, the, on that night, wearing a curly blonde woman's wig to try and disguise himself. Mark Lundy, I'll remind people, was 130 k's and about 6 foot 3. And she was very clear in what she saw. She kept remembering more and more things as she went along, um, right down to the details of the kind of shoes that he was wearing and the wrinkles on uh, around the bottom of his trousers. She also saw people across the road at the takeaway and described in intimate detail what was going on as she was driving in the dark past the scene. Um, the police uh, thought this was very good evidence, believed it, uh, and the officer in charge of the case told me that she gave very good evidence and he had no reason to doubt what she said. By the time of the second trial, of course, that didn't fit with a new police scenario that, that, that Christine and Amber were killed about eight hours later. And, and so Margaret Dance, who had admitted subsequently that her eyesight was so bad she'd had to have uh, an operation at Palmerston North Eye Clinic to um, to improve her eyesight. Uh, she was not called as a witness at the second trial. Um, Mike White is my guest. We're talking about the case of Mark Lundy. Is it unusual, by the way, for police to completely abandon uh, their case from the first trial and, and really start again for a second trial? 
Yeah, I think it's extraordinary, and, I, and certainly I'm not aware of any case in New Zealand where there's been anything like this. I mean, there were so many things that were changed from the first trial to the second trial, the three-hour, 300-kilometre drive. The time of death was changed eight hours from 7pm to, to 3am. The computer that at the first trial, the police claim Mark Lundy skillfully manipulated to show that it was shut down at a time that he was back in Wellington and had an alibi. All that was shown to be rubbish. The, the Margaret Dance, the eyewitness evidence. There were a whole lot of things that changed, the whole scenario, because the timing was changed. And I'm unaware of any case uh, in New Zealand that's had that kind of change. It was almost like, you know, we're having a second crack at this. Um, because for 15 years, the police stuck by the evidence that was produced at that first trial. They said, look, you can trust this evidence. And all the people that are criticising it and raising questions... They've just been manipulated by Mark Lundy and they're wrong. But after the Privy Council said, yeah, actually, this case, there's a whole lot of things that don't stack up in this and send it back for retrial, just on the verge of the second trial, pretty much, the police and Crown said, yep, you know, all those things that those critics were saying all those years, they're actually true and that, that scenario wasn't right. But hey, we've got another scenario and you can absolutely trust this one because, uh, you know, we've got the evidence to back it up. Can you imagine if an, an accused person if, if it, or someone that was convicted of a crime, though, Jesse, said years down the track, they suddenly changed their story and said, oh, you know that alibi that I gave you at the first trial? Well, you know, that wasn't true, but here's a new alibi. How about yeah. you uh, trust me on this one? Can you imagine how far that would get with a jury or, uh, or in our courts? But, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be fair, the, the prosecution and police did present strong evidence at the second trial um, about what was on Mark Lundy's shirt, and the jury accepted that and accepted all the other evidence, and they arrived at, at, at their guilty verdict. Why would Mark Lundy have wanted to kill his wife and daughter? OK, so the, the motive uh, theory hasn't changed. Um, that was that Mark Lundy had got in over his head, got um, in an ill-advised vineyard venture in the Hawke's Bay had committed himself. Uh, they hadn't sold shares in this company, he and his business partner, um, and he was in hock. And so he murdered his wife to get his her life insurance. And this is important because just, uh, you know, a matter of weeks before, the Lundys had increased the life insurance policies from 200000 to 500000 the only problem with that is that Mark Lundy committed these murders supposedly straight after this uh, decision to, to increase the amount uh, from two hundred to 500000 had been made. He actually believed that it hadn't gone through, that the paperwork hadn't been done. I mean, they'd been offered the chance to increase it to a million, but Mark Lundy had said, no, we don't want to, we can't afford that, we'll only pay 500000 If, as the police say, that Mark Lundy had been planning this murder for a long time, you would have thought that he would have increased it to a million to increase the amount of money he would have got. You would have thought also that he might have waited till after the policy paperwork had gone through and the, and the, and the sum assured had been increased to 500000 before he committed the murders. And you'd think that maybe if he was, had half a brain, he would have, you know realised that committing a murder days after you've just increased your wife's uh, insurance policy might point the police towards you. But, again, you know, that, that was certainly the motive, um, that it was for money, 
and that, that Mark Lundy killed his wife to try and get out of his debts. And any signs in his past behaviour or his relationship with Christine that would suggest that he'd be capable of killing his wife and daughter with a look like a tomahawk? It's a difficult game to say who might kill um, their partner or spouse. I mean, not many people, fortunately. But um, Mark Lundy had never had any criminal convictions. Uh, Everyone attested to the fact that he absolutely doted and adored his daughter, Amber. But again, you know, police and, and, and the public perhaps rightly will say, well... No man who truly loves his wife is going to hire prostitutes while they're away on business. Well, a lot of people obviously do that, but, I mean, that just played again into the hands of those who believe Mark Lundy was guilty. They said, well, how could he... You know, he obviously didn't love his wife, so much so that he hired a prostitute the night that they were killed. Again, though, you have to think, if you've planned the perfect crime, which... The police claimed that Ross Grantham, the officer in charge, said he, you know, he thought Mark Lundy reckoned that he'd planned the perfect crime. What is the one thing that you would not do to bring attention to yourself or suggest that you, you were guilty of killing your wife? That would be probably hiring a prostitute. I mean, that is the one thing that is going to make people think that you're in a loveless relationship and would be prepared to kill your wife. Mm. I mean, so Mark Lundy has either a genius who has planned this crime brilliantly and almost got away with it, or he's the dumbest criminal in the world hmm. for thinking that hiring a prostitute is a great way to prove that you were in Petoni. You know, he could have gone down the road and just bought a packet of chips from the, from the supermarket or whatever, anything, made a phone call that would have proven he was there, not hired a prostitute. When was he uh, with the prostitute? He rang an agency and the prostitute arrived a little before midnight, was there for roughly an hour and left about quarter to ten to one uh, the following morning on the 30th. So okay. that's that's why the, the time frame for Mark Lundy then going home and committing the murders, yeah. it, the, the clock starts ticking about one o'clock. What is the significance of, uh, and apologies to people listening, this is getting pretty um, gruesome, the contents of the stomachs of both the victims? Yeah, and without going into too much detail, at the autopsy of both Christine and Amber, the pathologist found their stomachs were, as he described, full. There was obvious evidence of a large meal, as he described it, being eaten he said recently, and there were identifiable objects. At 5.43, Christina and Amber, on the afternoon of the 29th, had, had bought a large McDonald's meal, a couple of burgers, chicken nuggets, a couple of fries, apple turnovers, etc. And so in the original theory was, well, their stomachs are full. As the pathologist said, no digestion has started, therefore they must have been killed pretty much straight after they ate this meal, hence the original 7pm time of death that the Mm. pathologist said. It gets tricky, though, when you suddenly shift your time of death out to about 3am the next morning. How come their stomachs are still full? How come they've got a large meal? So this was a real sticking point at the retrial for the prosecution. It's really important to stress, Jesse, that Trying to judge time of death from stomach contents is one of the least reliable forms of ascertaining a time of death that there is, and it is very controversial. But the only thing that that all the experts do agree on is that stomachs are generally empty after six hours. If you've eaten a meal, after about six hours, their stomach will be empty. And so if you accept that and think that the time of death was about three o'clock in the morning, 
how come their stomachs are still full? So the obvious answer to that is, well, they ate really late. So they've bought their big takeaway meal around just before six o'clock, gone home, supposedly eaten it then. Initially, the prosecution said, oh, well, maybe they didn't eat. They, you know, maybe they waited and waited until about eight, and ate at about eight o'clock. Well, seven-year-old girl who's just bought a big takeaway and she's made to wait till eight o'clock at night. But even then, if you take six hours from then, you know, their stomachs wouldn't be uh, full, as were described by the pathologists, at 3am. So the only thing that the prosecution has really been able to say to this is they must have eaten a large quantity later on. Christine Lundy, you know, she switched off a computer just before 11 o'clock. She could have eaten a meal or, or more things later on. She, you, you know, you, there's no way of knowing exactly what she might or might not have eaten. There's no real evidence that she did, but... Uh, you can assume that. But Amber, a kid who's gone to bed at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, a seven-year-old girl, how does she get up at midnight and have a big meal? Or is, yeah. You know, how does that happen? So it's a sticking point uh, for the prosecution case and something that hasn't really been adequately answered. It, it doesn't seem on the surface to make logical sense, but maybe there is an answer to it. And maybe Amber and Christine did have a midnight feast. Okay. Um, how do you explain the brain tissue on his shirt if he didn't do it? Yeah, uh, look, uh, <laughs> all the lawyers that have worked on Mark Lundy's case have, have tried to explain that. And there have been various accusations of contamination, accidental or, or on-purpose contamination um, from the scene that somehow got onto Mark Lundy's shirt. Um, the main argument against that is that the tests used to identify this as brain tissue were completely novel, had never been done in a forensic setting before, were done by a non-forensic scientist in Texas who didn't have a forensic lab. These tests had never been done on fabric before and the material was so degraded that they are unreliable and they certainly can't be relied on. Well, the answer to that, of course, is that many other experts have looked at these specs and said, yep, incontrovertibly, they are brain or central nervous system tissue. And so that's, you know, a critical point. It's, it's, it is the critical point of the case. And that's never really been able to be argued against by the defence to a point that um, has convinced either of the juries who heard this case. But again, Mark Lundy's supporters will say that this test, this immunohistochemistry testing, is so unreliable you just cannot be sure what is on his shirt. And there were other things that were were found on the shirt that kind of raised questions as well, other animal DNA. If not him, who? Yeah, good question. Um, wouldn't it be good for Mark Lundy's supporters if they could um, point to uh, someone else, obvious, like David Bain and Robin Bain, or, you know, or Tana Porahad? Um, very difficult, limited in what you can say in some respects about this. The um, defence at his retrial did put forward another family member who they accused of the crime. There's also uh, someone who you can't go into too much because they've got name suppression um, who was involved with Mark Lundy. There are various theories, and even within the Mark Lundy's defence team, there were disagreements on who the alternative culprit might be. But thus far, um, police haven't really been interested okay. in looking at anyone else. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. Now you can find more episodes in this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. If you're looking for something a bit different, you might want to try RNZ's Our Changing World or Healthier Hoax, two fascinating science-based podcasts. All RNZ's best podcasts can be found on the RNZ website 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeart or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just click on the follow button and you'll never miss an episode. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.